The best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things that you'd thought special, particular to you. And here it is, set down by someone else, a person you've never met, maybe even someone long dead. And it's as if a hand has come out and taken yours. The History Boys. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. And we are joined today by Lexi. So ignore any extra sounds she might make. She's being particularly noisy today. <laughs> Today's bonus episode, we are going to be diving into how to evoke certain emotions in the reader. We did an episode early on about how to write certain emotions, but this time we're going to look at how to make the reader feel those things. We didn't quite get to it in an earlier episode, so I wanted to approach the did not finish pile and the spite reads, the reasons why we put books down. There is still an emotional response from your audience that happens before they throw the book across the room. My husband was talking about this last night, and he mentioned that I don't not finish books. I just get to a point where I spite read it so I can have an excuse to complain about the entire thing instead of just 20 pages. And while, yes, I do do that, I don't always do that. There are some books that I don't finish. I don't finish books that bore me. If I'm just like, okay, this is boring, I'm not interested, or if there's like one or two tropes that they have that just bother me, like in particular Mary Sue MC, I'll just be like, okay, I'm done here. But if it's a book that's popular, that is so poorly written with so many problematic plot points, I will spite read that thing. It evokes so much hatred in me that I have to read it so I can complain about the whole thing and tell everyone why they're wrong. <laughs> I am very comfortable in just not finishing a book. I did do one spite read recently, which was The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I felt like I needed to have read it, but I immediately cleansed my soul afterward with The Martian, and it was much better. Again, it is a extremely popular book that you read so that you could complain to people who like the book. Absolutely. She complains about it to me a lot because I do like that book. I haven't figured out why yet, but... In my experience, there are two main reasons why I will put a book aside. I will first do it because of the mechanics, if there's head hopping, that kind of thing, or equally as often if the main character is an issue for me. One of my most recent did not finish. I read probably about two pages and put it down. I put this story down because it would go from one character's internal thought process to the other character's internal thought process so quickly in this first chapter that I decided, okay, I'm having a hard time keeping up with who's thinking right now. I can't follow this story. So I put it down. I also put down Matthew Riley's Seven Deadly Wonders fairly early on because of the physics of everything that's happening. It just wasn't realistic for them to be doing the things that he was claiming they would do. My particular expertise probably didn't help his cause any, 
but it would have been nice if he had had somebody who has mobility in their arms, <laughs> at least some kind of understanding of how humans move. Another story that I put down, aside from being annoyed at the love triangle situation, I was actually more annoyed at the main character. She was a pretty solid Mary Sue and was the damsel in distress type, even though she was supposed to be a warrior, a fighter. And all she did was whine and complain. The miscommunication trope was rife through the story. Nobody would tell her anything, and it drove me batty. Sounds like they had it right. (laughs) I wouldn't tell her anything either. It's like, you go play in your corner over there and wallow in self-pity. We're actually going to go get stuff done. (laughs) And part of that was the character's backstory just didn't ever quite fit to me. It never did quite make sense. She was a princess who didn't want to be a princess and kind of whined and complained the entire time. And then she ended up running away, training to be like a warrior assassin type thing, and complained about it the entire time, but was really good at the fighting thing, even though she'd been a princess her whole life. It just, it didn't fit. It didn't really work for me. So I challenge you, the listener, to think back on those spite reads and those did not finish and think about the exact moment you decided to set it aside. My brother recently stopped watching a fairly popular TV show and I had watched it when it had been released several years ago. And almost to the episode, we both stopped at the same time and neither of us have finished the second half of this TV show. What show? Arrow. Oh. When did you stop? I want to say it was like the third season-ish, where it was just all drama back and forth, and it's her fault and his fault and blah, blah, blah. Same. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Something went wrong from the storyteller to make me turn off the TV at that point. Also consider that for your last spite read, a book that you hated that you finished anyway. Why did you finish it? What drove you to do that? What emotions were you experiencing that made you read that? Obviously, we don't want you to try to evoke those particular emotions in your readers. You don't want readers spite reading your book because you're not going to get the good ratings that you need. But it's something to be aware of because then you can avoid it. If you have read a book and this is what was included and that's what made you hate it, you can avoid that. So note to self, don't have a date scene where they spend 10,000 words in an art gallery that is not remotely plot relevant. And then we're good. And for me, don't include the supposed romantic interest telling the main character, ooh, you fattened up. (laughs) What is she, roast dinner? Sorry, Throne of Glass, I have so many issues with that book. so many issues. It's pretty easy to tell when you and therefore your audience would put a book down. But more difficult is how do you make sure your audience is engaged emotionally? We're going to take a couple of different approaches throughout the rest of this episode. One is a look at the emotions themselves that you're trying to evoke. And two is the opinions you're trying to get readers to have about characters and little shortcuts and tricks that you can have to make sure that this opinion is true. 
The first thing that you need to be aware of is that emotions are fleeting for the most part. When those emotions are sustained over time, they tend to sour and turn bad. You don't want a hatred for a character to last so long in your story that that starts to become a hatred for your book. And the purpose of emotions is literally to evoke motion. So a lot of why you want particular emotions to happen at certain times is you want your reader to understand and feel so that if they were there, they would do something about it. They would put their hand on the main character's shoulder and comfort them while they're crying if they could. So let's look into how to make the reader feel. First off, let's look at angry. How do you make a reader angry? And we want to be clear, you're not making the reader angry at your book. You're making your reader angry at a scenario or a character. In what would probably be a deleted scene in Maidens and Monsters, which I haven't completed, there's a moment where the villain is corrupting a child and telling this child to kill a dog. We, as the readers, don't like this moment. You should have seen my face. As soon as she said that, it turned into an immediate, how dare you? There is an injustice happening, not just to the dog, but to the child because of this villain. And we want to, as readers, step in and stop it and smack the villain upside the head if we could. That's what anger is supposed to be, a response to an injustice. When you have an injustice occurring on the page... Your reader, fingers crossed, should be getting angry at it. It's more than just a pet peeve. People get annoyed at pet peeves. They don't get angry at them. So it needs to be something big. One of the characters in, sorry, I'm going to say it again, the Stormlight Archive, that I hate the most. Every time he shows up, I get angry, unreasonably angry. And it's because of this major injustice this character caused for the main character. Granted, that's what started him on the path to becoming what he became. But Amaram makes me so mad that I just want to reach through the book and strangle him. And that's the sign of a great author because you are having an emotional response to something that's happening on the page. And it's because this character destroyed my favorite character. So that is something that you can use, is if you're trying to make them angry at a character, it's going to be the bad guy. And there's a couple ways you can do that. The bad guy blames the good guy for crime. That's an injustice. That's the anger response is because there was an injustice done. And the injustice can be toward your main character or on behalf of another character. So the bad guy blames the best friend for a crime that they committed. This is still an injustice, and at least in my world, they evoke equal amounts of anger. If you point something at me, you point something at my best friend, I will be at least as angry if you blame my friend. I'll probably be more angry if you blame my friend. That's just me, though. So if you're looking for a way to make your reader angry, consider what makes you mad. What makes you frustrated? I recently saw a movie in theaters and I saw it with a family member and this family member said, hey, don't worry about the trash. That's why they have janitors. My hackles went up. I got angry because 
okay, yes, this is their job, but the person down the way spilled popcorn. They have enough to do. <laughs> we can at least fill our hands with the trash on our way out the door. These little injustices still get my hackles up. Those are great types of things to include within your story. However, you don't want it to be sustained anger. You want some moments, but you don't want that to be the only emotion because if you are angry for too long, it starts to become bitterness. Having that quick fleeting emotion makes it powerful, but having it sustained can desensitize us toward it and definitely make us dislike the character who sustains the anger. Anger is a healthy response to an injustice, but the bitterness is not healthy. We don't like that in the character, unless that's like their cornerstone memory of this one particular character dragged his mom out of the house by her hair. Okay, we can be bitter toward him. The next emotion we're going to get into is sad, the sorrow response. This is most often going to be a response to a loss or something broken. I have cried during books. I have cried a lot during Stormlight Archive books. Surprise, surprise. And it is because I was feeling a level, a piece of that same sorrow that the characters were feeling because of how the author wrote it, because a character died that I had become very attached to, and I was very sad for his death. And I'm tearing up a little bit just thinking about it. That response to a loss can only really be felt by the reader if there was a connection first. We really liked Obi-Wan Kenobi, so when he died, we felt that loss. If he died at the beginning of Act 1, we don't know him, there's no connection, we wouldn't feel that loss nearly as deeply. You can have early deaths if you do it right. The one example I'm thinking of is in the movie Up. I cried the first time I saw that movie in the first 10 minutes. And we didn't know Ellie that well, but we'd seen just enough to make us kind of attached. And then it was the death of a character, but it was not just her death, but the dreams unfulfilled that was so hard. And that's something that you can apply to more than just killing characters. Because yes, the saddest deaths are the ones where there was a dream unfulfilled, where there was a unended character arc. That arc got disrupted in the middle. But you can apply that to other things. If you want a reader to feel sad, there needs to be something unfulfilled, something never finished. And that's what's sad about it. If you're looking for more information on how to kill characters, we have done an episode on that. You can go back in our archives on our website and find that. But there is so much more to sadness than just death. But a lot of the same emotions happen based on that loss. Now, if it's sustained, then that can slide into depression. At the beginning of Up, after Ellie's death, we see Carl Fredrickson in a depression. It's not just a grieving at her funeral and the couple days after. He is not happy again until he finds a new adventure. So if you're looking to make your reader sad, think about what makes you sad every time. What is it that brings you to tears other than just simply death? What about that death? It's the early death, the one who died too soon. 
it's the lost potential that is the most sad. I heard someone say once that the saddest word in the English language is almost. She almost got to be a mom. He almost got to retire in peace. It was his last day on the job. All of these almosts make us feel that loss that much more. Enough with the sad stuff. Let's get on to the good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) There are good emotions. You don't always want your readers to be sad or angry or have those more negative connotated emotions. There are times where you want your reader to feel happy, to feel that joy that your character is experiencing. And in that, the key to making a moment happy is not only fulfilling a dream, but making sure it's simple, making sure it's short, it's brief. The simpler it is, the better the emotional response will be. It also needs to be a moment, not a circumstance. A character being born into a wealthy family, I don't really care about that because that's just part of their experience. But if I know this character has really been struggling in school and then they got their first A on a math test, that's something I can be happy for because it's a moment in time an accomplishment of some kind. We'll talk in a moment about tension and release, but except for those moments where you are relieving tension, especially like comedic moments, you don't really see a character truly happy unless it's at the very beginning or very end of the book. Because if they're truly happy and not being deceived in some way, then the story is over. It's completed. There's no reason for the character to continue striving toward the end goal. If they have moments when they're seemingly happy, there's going to be an undercurrent, some sort of ending to that happiness where they know this is only going to last so long before this moment is over and I have to go back to my real life that's not so happy. And if you have that happiness just at the beginning your audience will expect that not to last. When I wrote Convicted, the opening chapter, everything is running smoothly. Yeah, they have challenges in their marriage and this and that. But for the most part, everything's good to go. He's rescued her from the Russians. They're off to go fight for the Ukrainians, blah, blah, blah. Things are going well. Because things are going well, we know that's not going to last. Because sustained happiness within fiction just doesn't exist. (laughs) I'm just going to put it that way. If it's happy the entire book, it's not an interesting book. Just like with anger and sadness, sustained happiness can become joy. This sometimes presents itself in the character feeling delusional. When was the last time you watched the original Snow White movie? Oh, it's been a while, but I remember it very well because I used to watch it a lot. She wants her prince. But for the most part, her stepmother, who sent her into the middle of the woods with a huntsman and said, bring back her heart and leave the rest of her corpse there, that doesn't really bother her. She, she can whistle to birds. Oh, this nice stranger gave me an apple. Yay. There's nothing sane about this character at all. But she's happy doing it. It's because she's delusional. Yay. So is there something in your life that makes you feel happy every time you see it? Chocolate. (laughs) 
And it can be something so simple. It's just a simple joy that you can introduce to your character where that makes them think of the better times and lets them forget the terrible things that they're going through, even just for a moment. For me, it's often being part of the success of others and helping someone else to succeed. I've never been a hero. I've always been a mentor character. (laughs) Maybe a sidekick. I'm the witch in the woods that curses people that approach my house. Sounds good to me. (laughs) But seeing success, like getting that A on the math paper that was so hard, these little things, especially ones that we as audience members can relate to emotionally, are what help warm us and fill us with joy. When I was reading Addie LaRue, there's a moment where we were supposed to be filled with warmth and happiness for the character who finally gets to write for the first time in 300 years. I've never felt that. There's no emotional connection to that moment, but she has a success. And so, yes, some people may have felt joy at that moment, but I didn't personally connect to it. That's because you're heartless. Uh, Maybe. But more fun than happiness is fear. Fear is such a good tool within writing. And it often takes two steps to evoke. You can't just do jump scares in a book. Those don't really exist. Your first step is that you need to make sure that the reader is connected with the character, that they care about the character. And then you need to put that character in mortal danger. A while back, I was looking at a list of don't open your books in this way. Don't start your first chapter in such and such fashion. One of the things that they mentioned is don't start off with a character running for their life because we don't have an emotional connection to that character. They could be jogging on the track for all we care. We aren't afraid for the character, especially if it's book one. That's how my book starts. One of the ways that you can help evoke the fear within the reader is the reader knowing something the character doesn't. When they can see the axe murderer in the background, when the character is completely unaware and focused on their task. This is a basic component of building suspense across mediums, but especially for your writing, If we see the bad guy pushing the old lady out of the street as he's running toward your main character, okay, we at least have some semblance of the character of the bad guy. Even if your main character doesn't see that moment, your reader seeing that moment will then ramp up that fear for your main character. A lot of this comes from the reader wanting the character to make different decisions where the reader can say, no, no, don't go that way, but they go that way anyways. You do need to be careful because writing this can sometimes make the character look incompetent. So there needs to be a reason that the character's making the choice that they are, even if as the reader, you see it and go, that's the bad choice, that's the wrong choice, but I can understand why you're doing it this way. Because you didn't see the axe murderer down at the other end of the alleyway. We, as the audience, did. If they saw the axe murderer and went down the alleyway anyway, then they're incompetent. This is where multiple point of views is incredibly helpful in building suspense. Be careful, though, because the sustained fear becomes anxiety. 
And you get a lot of emotional burnout when it becomes anxiety because the story starts to feel like a burden. So you can't do every moment is some level of fear. Can you imagine a book where the character is literally running the entire book? Ugh. There needs to be that moment where they cower with their spine against a big tree and they're like afraid to look around the edge of the tree to see if the person is still after them. These moments break up the fear so that when she hears the twig snap and starts to run again, it's a fresh surge of fear within your reader as well. You mentioned earlier about tension and release. Tension and release are equally important. You do need that tension in order to evoke the fear in your reader, but you need the release as well so that it doesn't become dull fear. Like we've asked about the other emotions, which types of things make your heart race and not in a fun way? Which types of situations just give you the heebie-jeebies? If you really don't like being buried alive, then put your character in that situation. You're feeling that, you know, even just imagining your character in that situation, your hackles are going up. That bleeds onto the page. My husband was just talking the other day about putting down some bug deterrent pesticide stuff. And he had like 12 spiders jump on him while he was doing this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I could easily include arachnophobia because, mm, spiders, ugh, hate them. See, that might be a really great thing to torment Janik with. If she's a necromancer, she'd be all about that. She'd be like, yeah, let it crawl on my hand, cool, and he'd just go, <laughs> You may have noticed a trend throughout all of these when we are talking about how to make someone angry, connection to the character, then the injustice. Sadness, connection to the character, then loss. Happiness, connection to the character, then a success. Fear, connection to the character, and then danger. You can mix and match these as much as you want. You can have that loss plus the success, that bittersweet with the sad and happy combined. You can do all kinds of things with all of these emotions. That's why emotions are more of a spectrum than sorted as easily as we talked about. But in every case, connection to the character precedes whatever the situation is that puts them in that fleeting emotion. But that connection is so important because it builds the empathy for the protagonist. That is the first step in evoking any emotion is empathy for the protagonist, where the reader is putting themselves in those shoes and experiencing it for themselves. That is how you evoke emotion. So how do we build empathy for that protagonist? There are a couple of ways and a couple of suggestions we want to put forward toward you. Most of these will happen within the first act of your book. You need to start, if nothing else, within your first chapter. Because through building this empathy, you're giving your reader someone to root for. That's one of the reasons why I didn't finish Lord Fowl's Bane. I really didn't want to root for the main character. I was kind of rooting for the villain to just snap his fingers and wipe the guy off the face of the planet. I would have been okay with that. I wasn't afraid for him. I wasn't happy when he had a success. I wasn't sad when he had a failure. Making sure your audience is rooting for your hero is incredibly important. However, the beginning is not the time for a pet the dog moment. 
It's not the time for you to take the pause and introduce the soft side of your character. There has to be some other reason why you are building that connection and that emotional reason to care for the character. Comedy is always helpful in there. But the first thing that we want to address in the building the empathy for the protagonist is making sure your character is likable. Again, that was my issue with Lord Fowlsbane. They need to have positive traits. They need to have talents and passions, some hope, some dream that they're working towards. When we were mentioning the Pixar movie Up earlier, we only knew Ellie for this long, but we immediately connected with her because as a child, she was adorable and she had dreams. She had passions. She wanted to explore. Adventure is out there. And we also saw in that short time her vulnerabilities, those things that made her human, that we could connect with. That makes somebody likable is knowing that they're human, that they have flaws and can fall and fail. And that's really the next step to consider when building empathy for your protagonist is not just likability, but relatability making sure that they have goals, they have emotions, they have scars, and not just physical ones. Introducing the lie that they believe about themselves will make them very relatable because we all have a lie that we believe about ourselves. That understanding of that lie will help the reader also know how the character is going to change between now and the end of the book. And it helps us start to root for that progress and that development. The other thing that you can do to address building sympathy and empathy for your main character is just making the situation at least interesting. Of course, you want it to start off desperate and then get worse by the end. Having that particular villain, the President Snow, that just needs to be stopped. If no one else will, fine, I'll do it. We start to root for the character because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There's also a level of intrigue where it gets the reader asking questions. So you don't want to lay out the whole plot in the first couple of chapters. You do need to hold back secrets, especially some of the main character's backstory. The most recent book that I read, I read it in a day because I was so intrigued not only by the world, but by the mystery that surrounded the main character. I was a wee bit annoyed at the level of miscommunication trope in there, but it helped feed that curiosity of, okay, what is the character's story? What actually happened with her that is forcing her to hide away on a spaceship for seven years? So there are certain things that you can do to evoke emotions and create empathy for your characters, but the rest of the characters... How do I immediately make the reader go, I love this person, I hate that person, I want that one to die, he's obviously the romance interest. Let's start diving into those. If you have a character that you want the readers to look at and go, I hate that guy, you need to have the opposite of a pet the dog moment. Now, obviously, you don't actually need them to uh, murder the dog, Lee. It's a kind of a trend. But it is something that they do that causes that immediate, they're a horrible person, reaction. We talk a little later about whose innocence automatically in our readers' minds. 
So any violation of that innocence, we automatically hate that guy. The one who's pushing over the old lady into the pool. We don't like him. Those innocent characters they can target a little bit. The animals, the children, and the elderly. Of course, in the opposite of the pet, the dog category, instead of having him step in when a guy's harassing a girl at a bar, he joins in the harassing the girl at the bar. (laughs) He's laughing at the abuser's jokes. These kind of racist, sexist comments, they're people we don't like. Even if he's not engaging directly in those, he could be encouraging them, applauding the abuses that are done by other people. We're going to have, in October, a lot more information on this type of topic with different kinds of psychological games that people play. But it's a really great way to make people hate that character. Another thing that they do is they end up seeking credit and validation for things that they didn't do. Perfect example of this, Gilderoy Lockhart. He wasn't a mean person. I mean, he was kind of the magical equivalent of a serial killer, but he wasn't cruel or malicious toward Harry. He just sort of wiped out people's memories. You don't always have to have an actual, like, villain that your characters hate. It can just be somebody that just, ugh. However, you do need to have a reason why. There needs to be more than just, well, everybody doesn't like him. One thing that I've seen a lot in fiction is that the author will set it up to be like, you're supposed to hate this guy, but everybody likes them. And the reader just doesn't know why they are supposed to hate this person that everybody seemingly likes. It's one of my issues with the villain in the book I'm reading right now is the main villain is more or less on top of the world at this point. I'm nearing the end of the third book in the series and he has all of this control, all of this power, and he throws temper tantrums and kills people if they disagree with him. Why do people follow him? There's no reason for that. So please make sure that when you're creating this villain, that we have a reason to dislike him and his supporters have a reason to support him. He could be violent and cruel and terrible, but his company offers really good life insurance. So, hey, if I die in the line of work, my family's going to still be taken care of and that's fine. And hopefully good dental. Just saying, if Batman's coming after him. (laughs) Another thing that really just makes me hate somebody is groveling. This isn't necessarily a villain. This is just a character that's like brown nosing to the teacher. The first two characters that popped into my mind are Wormtail from Harry Potter and Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings. Yes. Both very grovelly. They're slimy in their interactions. They bow down, but you can tell that there's other motivations behind what they're doing and what they're choosing, and it just makes you feel gross, and I hate them because of that. The last thing that will automatically make me hate a character is if they treat different people differently, depending on what that person can do for them. Good examples of this would be characters who treat the wealthy person really well, because they know that if they get on their good side, that that wealthy person's going to invest in whatever adventure that they have planned. But this poor orphan girl on the street, they kick her aside because she can do nothing for them. 
So there are a lot of ways to make me hate somebody. It's a lot harder to make me love somebody. Yeah. Setting up somebody as the love interest, it can be a little difficult because you want to set up the love interest without making them seem unreasonable that they're still available. Because if they're just that good, why aren't they taken already? One of the ways to blatantly announce to your audience this guy's going to be the one that she ends up with at the end is that he's a perpetual bachelor, but everybody wants him in some regard. You know, the reason why he's still single is because he doesn't want to be attached. That's one of those ways. Now, I will say Lee's the one who made the list, so they're all very tropish. <laughs> Everything is tropish. It's like, when was the last time you read a romance without a trope? Never. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. All of it. Another way is to make that character financially well-off. They're well-established in the world, and it makes the reader see them as a good match because they can provide for the main character. Aspiring to be a guitarist in a heavy metal rock band is only attractive if the character is also a lawyer or some other way that he can make money for himself and not live in his parents' basement. But the most obvious way to make somebody a love interest is to have that meet cute. That moment where they interact and it makes you go, oh, in the book that I just finished reading, the meet cute that set up the character was the main character was finally able to take a chance to just hang out at the poolside because most of the people were off ship. And the captain of the ship comes walking in because his crewmates played a prank on him and hid several items of his uniform and he needed to get those things back. One of those items was a tie they tied over the pool. So in this interaction, he's like, hey, I need your help because I can't reach this tie. So can you do this? But because she's been hiding for seven years, she never learned how to swim. So he has to, like, rescue her when his plan breaks and he has to keep her from drowning. And then he feels bad because, oh, wow, I almost drowned this poor girl. He's a, a rescuer, a hero. <laughs> <laughs> there are also a strangely different set of rules that you apply to make her, obviously, the love interest. And one of the most common that I see is that she has a secret beauty or a secret art. She secretly sings in the shower, that kind of thing that the man can then expose to the world and everyone can grovel at how fantastic she is. This is sometimes done with the Clark Kent costume change. By that, I mean taking the glasses off and suddenly they're a completely different person. Another frequent setup for a female love interest is the don't need no man independence where it's kind of that flip side to the perpetual bachelor. It's the female saying, I can do this on my own. I'm going to be on my own because I need to prove that I don't need a man to be successful. Another character type that's incredibly useful when trying to get your audience to feel a particular emotion is the innocent. That's not just the person who's drinking coffee at the coffee shop who's not involved in the alien invasion. Yes, these innocents need to be saved. They are more NPCs. But knowing who your innocents are 
will automatically help you align your readers with certain people and against certain people. To make a character innocent, they need to be vulnerable some way. Most commonly, it's the young, the elderly, animals, and those with disabilities. Sometimes, and I don't agree with this one, they also include females in this category. But be careful with that one because it, it's a little sexist to say that all women are vulnerable. You can have a pregnant woman or perhaps somebody who needs to get off the ship with the women and children first kind of thing. But for the most part, you only really use this if you're applying it to one of the other things. A little girl is a little more innocent than a little boy. An old woman is a little more innocent than an old man. The next one that we want to talk about is making a character seem dangerous, where the reader immediately sees this person as suspicious or dangerous in some way. One of the best ways is to take those innocent characters and corrupt them. Just look at any Stephen King book where you have that clown that's supposed to be happy and joyful and there's like a whole set of rules about clowns and being joyful and whatever. And then all of a sudden you take that and corrupt it and it's a murderous supernatural being. Something that is an easy way to make a morally gray character feel dangerous is to make them comfortable in what is uncomfortable for everyone else. One of the good representations of this is having a character stab somebody and the difference with having like your main character stab and kill someone is that character usually feels some kind of regret in taking a life. If you want somebody to seem dangerous, they stab and kill somebody and think nothing of it like it's just another Tuesday. When I wrote my ninja assassin character, his mentality was basically... They're human until the fight begins, and then they're just a thing. The body in no soul, no history, no dreams that need to be fulfilled, none of that. They're just a thing. Another way is that the character sees danger in the mundane, where this old lady walking down the street, this character sees that old lady and says, is that somebody else in disguise? A lot of flashing lights at the tops of buildings or plastic bags on the freeway. These types of things can also trigger PTSD symptoms. So if you're looking for more in detail in that regard, because that flash at the top of the building might be a sniper. It might be just a plastic bag or it might have an IED within it. These types of things that my mom won't notice, my friend who is in the military would. They can also, in that same kind of vein, Always be armed and ready. Always be looking for, this can be a weapon. This is my escape route. I need to be sitting in this corner. That gives you a sense of this character is familiar with dangers, that fight or flight ability. Never letting themselves get trapped or stuck without having something to use in their defense. And finally, their physique. Jack Reacher is six foot five, 225 pounds of all muscle. All he needs to do is just walk into a room and people are scattering in the other direction. <laughs> in the end, size does matter. If they look muscular or if they look lean, 
different things about their muscle groups will tell you different things about their fighting style. And the way they carry themselves is dangerous. And the last thing we wanted to talk about when talking about evoking emotions from the readers is giving them something to look forward to before they even open the book. I'm mostly talking about fan service. There are a lot of remakes and sequels in Hollywood right now where the viewers already know certain things that are coming up. These moments of fan service can be incredibly helpful in making sure they're engaged if they weren't beforehand. Some of this is simply including a nod to past works or to creators in some way. So in Marvel, before Stan Lee passed away, we would go into Marvel movies expecting and looking for the Stan Lee cameo. Hitchcock did something similar to the point where it became a signature for him, but he also kind of got annoyed at it because people would spend the movie looking for him instead of actually watching the movie. So he would move it earlier and earlier in the plot so people would pay attention after they spotted him. It's also fairly common to do nods to your own works. Stephen King has done that in a lot of his horror stuff where he might mention Cujo in Pet Cemetery. These can be just throwaway comments if the reader hasn't read the other books that that author has done. And you as an author can actually integrate those pieces in if you want. So one character is aware of another character. But that is done entirely for your audience's sake. And they always get a kick out of it because, hey, I spotted it. Another type of fan service is to include anachronisms. So we recently watched the first few episodes of a TV show called Our Flag Means Death, and at least 30% of the comedy in that are anachronisms. The pirates are fist bumping. This is one of these things that you do, not because it's in character, but because your audience loves it. And that's another facet of fan service. And kind of tying in with the Stanley cameos and the Hitchcock cameos, You'll include that a lot with the reboots. The new Mary Poppins had a nod to the original by including Dick Van Dyke doing a tap dance. These little cameos that, if you know who this character is, it means so much more to you that this particular scene unfolded this way. All of these don't evoke a particular emotion other than increasing that connection that the reader has with the story. It makes them feel something towards it, whether that's a moment of giggling because, hey, I recognize that reference. I understood that reference. <laughs> or maybe it's a nod to something sad that happened, and that's the emotion that it evokes. But you can include these things because it helps the reader become more involved in the story, almost breaking the fourth wall on the process. It 100% makes them more attached to you. So that's one of the great things about the MCU is each story is its own story. But we could have Thor show up for just the post credit scene. And then that's it. If we haven't seen Thor, okay, this character has a problem. If we have, we're that much more attached to the whole MCU because of this little bit of fan service. Overall, you need to be aware of what kinds of emotions you're evoking with your writing. If you aren't aware, then it's possible you're going to be creating the wrong ones. 
those wrong ones are what cause the readers to put down the book or to do a spite read, which is exactly what you don't want. So you need to focus on your intention. Do you want the reader to feel happy here or sad here? And how do you do that? You are the master puppeteer in creating these stories. You're not only manipulating the character's emotions, you're manipulating the audience's emotions. Make sure you manipulate it the way you want to. And even more than the audience, you're manipulating your own emotions, which can be very cathartic, especially when you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. 